This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Wednesday, February 8th, and the State of the Union is loud. We start here. In between raucous exchanges with Republicans, President Biden gives his State of the Union address. Anybody who doubts it, contact my office. We'll walk you through the moments that mattered and why he had to stop for more than applause breaks. Volunteers in Turkey and Syria are digging through rubble with their bare hands, but could the scale of tragedy have been avoided? They have not gotten to many parts of the affected area. When it comes to confidence in the Turkish government, cracks are already beginning to show. And they've been selling infant formula for years, but they're selling it harder than ever now. This report even compares them to the tobacco and the fossil fuel industries. Why critics say formula companies are taking women's fears and distrust and exploiting them. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. The most striking image of last night might have been etched into memory before President Biden walked onto the House floor. It wasn't an image of Biden at all. It was Vice President Kamala Harris standing there at the rostrum, just as she's been the last couple State of the Union addresses. But next to her was standing someone new. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had taken the spot previously occupied by Nancy Pelosi. And they were standing there chatting like colleagues, a new day in Washington. And if that image sent a message of grown-ups having bipartisan grown-up conversations, well, that's exactly the message President Biden was looking to send as he walked into the room. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. And yet, despite the claims of friendship with the new speaker... Speaker, I don't want to ruin your reputation, but I look forward to working with you. <laughs> this turned into a really noisy affair. A lot to get through in this address, so let's get into it. ABC's White House correspondent Karen Travers joins us this morning. Karen, you and I were emailing during the speech, and you were wondering if maybe the president had chugged a Red Bull right before he walked in. He seemed fired up for somebody with such low approval ratings. He really did seem fired up. He seemed to feed off of that crowd. Billion-dollar companies have to pay a minimum of 15%. God love them. 15%. That's less than a nurse pays. You know, we were talking in the lead-up to this speech about what the vibe was going to be like in that room. You know, he gave a speech last year and the year before when it was a Democratic majority. So people were on their feet. They were applauding him. He kind of owned the room a little bit more. This was different last night because now suddenly Republicans are in charge. There's more of them in there. I want to thank my Republican friends who voted for the law and my Republican friends who voted against it as well. But I'm still, I, I still get asked to fund the projects in those districts as well. But don't worry. I promised I'd be a president for all Americans. We'll fund these projects. And I'll see you at the groundbreaking. You got a sense that he almost enjoyed the sparring. Our colleague, Will Steakin, had a chance to ask the president as he was leaving the Capitol last night what he thought of the rowdy reception. And this is classic Joe Biden. He said, rowdy? I thought it was a nice reception. And he smiled and laughed. So, you know, I think he did enjoy <laughs> a, it. A Delaware sensibility about uh, Totally. It. And even some of the tweets from White House officials, you know, they were picking up on the fact that people, uh, the reaction was that it was actually good for 
for Biden to have that back and forth with some of the House Republicans. I think overall, though, you know, when you look at this speech, it was exactly what the White House had billed this speech to be. Projects that are going to put thousands of people to work rebuilding our highways, our bridges, our railroads, our tunnels, ports, airports, clean water, high-speed internet, all across America. It was very, very heavy on economic policy. There were very brief mentions of COVID, and think about how different that was from years past. Uh, Very brief mention of Ukraine. Compare that to last year. This year, though, it's all about the economy, because that really is what the president has to emphasize. They're looking at poll numbers, just like all the reporters in Washington are, and they understand the mood of the country right now. Here at home, gas prices are down $1.50 from their peak. Food inflation is coming down, not fast enough, but coming down. Inflation has fallen every month for the last six months. The White House said coming into this that the president was going to point to positive indicators to try to ease Americans' concerns. And he really leaned into the fact that job growth continues to be strong. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs. More jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years. He got that big boost from the jobs report from January with 517,000 jobs created last month. That was a really big thing for him to be able to tout. But, you know, Brad, the big challenge for him, the big sales pitch he has to make is that Americans aren't all, all seeing this right now. They're not feeling it. And it's not clear that in one speech last night, he convinced Americans that what he is doing, what he has done, is helping them. Remember that poll we had just come out over the weekend that found right. four in 10 Americans said they're worse off financially. Since Joe Biden became president, only 16 percent say they're better off. And Karen, maybe I'm old fashioned here, but I usually don't think of this as like an audience participation event. I don't think of the president <laughs> of the United States doing crowd work like a stand up. Right. This. Yeah. But, yeah. But, this isn't British parliament. He was going back and forth with Republicans here, especially when it got to sort of the economic section. Yeah. This was a really striking moment. Nearly 25 percent of the entire national debt that took over 200 years to accumulate was added by just one administration alone, the last one. They're the facts. Check it out. So the president starts talking about the national debt. And he said, you know, no president added more to the national debt than his predecessor. And that got a reaction from House Republicans, talking, of course, about former President Trump. But he brought that up to start talking about this debate over cutting Social Security and Medicare. And Brad, you know, we've talked about this. This is the big debate in Washington right now. The president wants to raise the debt limit without any preconditions, without any strings attached, just raise the debt limit so the government does not default in early summer. The Republicans will not do that, they say, unless there is a a debate and then an agreement on spending cuts. And addressing the deficit. Like you got to give us. You got to give us stuff if we're going to extend this credit. You gotta give us stuff. So when the president last night started talking about cutting Social Security in Medicare, you got this really uh, feisty, to use that word again, feisty reaction from some on the Republican side. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Let me give you. Anybody who doubts it, contact my office. And he said, I don't think it's a majority of you. He said, I don't even think it's, you know, significant. I'm not going to name names. And then there were some boos in the House chamber. And the president, again, 
feeding off of that energy in the room, he said, okay. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. And it almost seemed like... Like he used this as a chance to almost right? negotiate in front of everyone. Exactly. Almost like he walked them into it. Like, I'm going to uh. say that you guys all want to do something. Boo, we don't want to do that. Oh, you don't want to do that? Okay, well, who doesn't want to do that? We applaud. Great, let's not do that. I'm not going to allow them to take away, be taken away. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. But apparently it's not going to be a problem. So he says, great, we all agree. If anybody then tries to cut Social Security, which he says apparently no one's going to do, if you're going to try to cut Medicare, I will veto it. Now, let's just kind of step back for the reality check here. Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, has said he is not going to cut Social Security and Medicare. Those cuts are not on the table. That's why they're so frustrated with him here. This is why they're so frustrated. They don't like this as a talking point. White House officials have been hammering this for weeks, saying they want to cut this. They want to cut this. This is what is on the table for them. But Kevin McCarthy he hasn't put out his plan about what are his spending cuts. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it. Unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Which is why Joe Biden keeps saying, you know, show me your cuts. I'll show you mine. And until that happens, it's allowed the White House to keep framing this as this is what they want to do. I see. That clarifies, I think, why why Republicans were so fired up in, in that section. Oh, yeah. But it, it, man, it's just such a departure from I'm thinking of Representative Joe Wilson back in the day, like over a decade ago, yelled, you lie at President Obama. He got censured by Congress for that. Like GOP leaders told him that's not OK. You have to apologize. He did. Like now you had lots of members being like, yeah, it's totally cool to see yell at the president during this. I, I guess I'm wondering, bottom line, Karen. How are we going to remember this speech? What sticks out about this State of the Union in this moment? I think it's going to depend on two things. And, you know, one is a policy thing. I think it will depend on where this debate over the debt ceiling and spending cuts goes over the next couple of weeks and months. Somebody's going to have to blink. There's going to have to be some negotiation here. How it gets worked out, we might look back at this night. The State of the Union speech and see the beginnings of the framework, you know, that Social Security back and forth, that uh, the yelling from the Republicans, that maybe that was kind of the uh, origin of where an agreement comes from. So that's one part of it. Two, I think how we remember this State of the Union is what the president decides and when he announces, if he announces he's running for his reelection. And if he does in the next couple of weeks uh, announce he is running for a second term, then this speech will be viewed in the context of uh, almost a soft launch for that reelection. This was his stump speech is what we'll end up saying. Absolutely. You know, he reflected back on his two years of legislative accomplishments. He talked about what he could do for the next two years working with House Republicans. We've been sent here to finish the job, in my view. So let's finish the job. Let's finish the job. Let's finish the job this time. That phrase, finish the job. Yeah, he's talking about, you know, getting this progress to continue now with a House Republican majority. But you could also say it's finishing the job of keeping it going for himself, staying in office, keeping his own uh, agenda going for another four more years with the reelection. If you look at the difference of two years with a Democratic Congress and now two more years with a Republican House and a Democratic Senate, 
It's almost like the scoreboard is set. You know, the stuff he's done is what he's done. It's hard to see big things that the president's going to be able to add to his big wins that he could campaign on. He, he's got it all at this point. So this speech last night really does then become the framework for a re-election message if he does decide to run again. Yeah, and if this was President Biden saying, hey, look how far we've cut, look how different this is from 2020 or the years before that. The dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. Well, who do Republicans choose to represent them? But Sarah Sanders, of course, the former press secretary for President Trump, now the governor, young governor from Arkansas, giving the GOP response in which she said Democrats were essentially trying to silence the right. She said that wouldn't happen. They wouldn't lose that battle. Certainly didn't lose the battle on on the House floor last night. All right. Uh, Karen Travers at the White House. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, forget thousands. The death toll in Turkey and Syria could be in the tens of thousands. And critics are saying the fault doesn't just lie in eastern Anatolia. We're back in a bit. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on. But when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor. You know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more or I'd read a book or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. Right now in Turkey, time is running out. Along the Syrian border, the temperature overnight was 20 degrees Fahrenheit. And still, in the wake of a devastating earthquake, people are miraculously being found alive in what used to be buildings. This was a father literally clawing through rubble with his hands when he finally finds his daughter, Noor. Your father is here. Don't be scared. Noor, please look at me here. Talk to your father, he says. Meanwhile, right across the border in a town near Aleppo, Syria, children weren't just being found. An infant was born in the crevices between slabs of concrete. 
Rescuers had been drawn to the sound of crying. This baby had been born three hours prior. The girl has a large bruise on her back and it is swollen. She was probably subjected to high pressure or something fell on her under the rubble. She eventually was extricated and rushed to the hospital, but the mother didn't make it out of this collapsed five-story apartment building alive. And this is why authorities are saying the death toll could skyrocket well past the 8,000 or so being reported right now. The World Health Organization is predicting 20,000 at least dead. Because while survivors are rushing to the scene from countries around the world, those survivors won't be able to survive many more nights like this. We uh, have information that uh, hundreds of patients are still under the debris. While the coming days, of course, are all about the recovery, there are already questions about whether this scale of death could have been avoided. Not death period. A quake this large would almost certainly destroy buildings. But did the death toll have to be this high? That is a question that Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan will be answering between now and Election Day, which for him is just a couple months away. Let's go to Asla Adantashbash. She's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution for years. She was a journalist covering Turkey. And Asla, there's no discernible cause of an earthquake, but you've said that some of this tragedy might have been preventable. Why is that? Certainly. I mean, this was a big earthquake by any stretch of imagination. It was massive, not just the size of it, but the the, the intensity and the geographical area. But, of course, you also have a situation that points to human error in several ways. Shoddy construction, no doubt. Mm. Uh, Turkey is on an earthquake zone. It's on a seismic zone. And it has had devastating earthquakes before. In 1999, I was in Istanbul when an earthquake killed in that area uh, altogether 17,000 people. Seven stories reduced to formless rubble and everywhere fragments of former lives, domestic chores and private hobbies. Everything swept away in 45 seconds that seemed to go on forever. And then Turkey passed the legislation for building codes and earthquake legislation. But it turns out it had stopped really enforcing both the building codes and regulations and its own preparedness in terms of earthquake relief and being prepared on a urban level. There are other issues. You know, Turkey has had a major overhaul of its governance system. More than 50,000 people have been arrested and 140,000 dismissed or suspended since last year's attempted military takeover. President Erdogan has pushed for a referendum several years ago, which barely passed, giving him massive powers. The opposition leader, who began the march and has walked around 20 kilometres a day, says the purge and emergency rule by Mr Erdogan constitute a second coup. It is such that he decides on everything. He decides the the governance has become a lot more centralised. And I was going to say, I imagine a lot of concerns like this would fall to any Turkish government. But you're saying Erdogan specifically, in his capital of Ankara, he owns this. Well, this system just does not work. Everything is decided in Ankara and only in Ankara and by one man alone. And uh, it is also problematic because many municipalities are now opposition strongholds. They voted for opposition parties. So you have no uh, coordination between, for example, Hatay. There is no coordination between the mayor in Hatay who 
is entirely uh, rebuffed by the government, which only wants to work with mayors that are from the governing party. Oh, like you're already you're already seeing this tension between localities and, and the capital. Oh, yes, very much. Even on this day, on such a day of calamity, where there should be national unity, we've seen President Erdogan, uh, you know, call mayors from provinces that were, which are from his party in person, but not opposition mayors. Is the construction itself a concern in, in a country like Turkey? Is that is that where some of the frustrations coming from? Like these buildings are literally structurally unsound. People are increasingly asking that question in Turkey on social media. They seem angry at the fact that, you know, one building stands still and then the next one is down. Uh, there's clearly um, sloppy construction and officials that haven't bothered to enforce existing legislation and guidelines, which are pretty solid. What I was about to say, that the, the, the burgeoning economy of Turkey seems important there, that, that there is so much economic might. This is a place where like things are happening, people are building, and perhaps very quickly. There was a real clear decision pronounced outright that this would be a construction-based growth model. Mm. And president believes it's the crown jewel of the economy. It's bad quality growth. Mm. You know, if you build your economic model on construction, you're not going to have people who are, you know, opening factories or, or investing in tech sector. It's as simple as that. Uh, second issue that people have is because everything is so centralized, uh, relief efforts and search and rescue uh, operations are also very centralized. The government has basically uh, didn't want a huge, strong civil society after the failed coup of 2016. And what they want is a government NGO, government federal uh, search and rescue operation to do everything. And as a result, they're stretched, overstretched. They have not gotten to many parts of the affected area, including big towns like Hatay and Elbistan. So many places where the first 24 hours were critical. If you speak Turkish and you follow Turks on social media, there are people who are holding their kid's hand as he's dying. Just today I heard about a friend's friend who was talking to his father, who's in his 80s, but under the rubble, still alive for 24 hours, and they couldn't get anyone wow. for the uh, you know, relief effort. I mean, imagine. And, he, and you, sound, you sound in your voice pained by this, even though you're thousands of miles away. I, you know, in Turkey, we knew this, and a major earthquake was coming. This is not, uh, this is not a surprise. We pay earthquake taxes. Where is that money? What is it being used? Yeah, and your observation that there were buildings that stood tall here, and there were lots then that just absolutely crumpled right next to those buildings. Uh, Asla Adatashbash from the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, formula makers allegedly have a marketing formula all their own. One last thing is next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And one last thing. It's one of the most intensely personal choices a new mother can make. What should you feed your kid? It's also one of the most fraught topics there is. Well, yesterday, the World Health Organization came out with a damning report about the infant formula industry. They're calling out what they say are manipulative and exploitative advertising practices. That's ABC's Sasha Pesnik, who's been covering the formula shortage over the last year. This report even compares them to the tobacco and the fossil fuel industries that... They're pouring these big dollars into aggressive lobbying and marketing techniques. This report says 40 years ago, countries around the world signed on to this code that said breast milk and infant formula should be above business-as-usual marketing practices. In the forthcoming decades, though, formula has become really big business. Commercial milk formula sales have boomed over the last few decades. This report says it's gone from about... $1.5 $1.5 billion in the late 1970s to more than $55 billion as we hit 2020. And so what's happened, the WHO says, is formula companies have started adopting the practices of, say, your favorite car brands. It's less about the product itself and more about messaging a type of lifestyle. One story that the report cites from a major U.S. company talks about how breastfeeding mothers are portrayed as judgmental about formula feeding and breastfeeding itself is divisive among women that, quoting from the ad campaign, that moms achieve so much more without thinking about their own limitations. Many American mothers have described how polarizing breastfeeding can become. The World Health Organization says it's the preferred option for a number of reasons, but there are lots of reasons someone might not breastfeed, right? Maybe they can't. Maybe it's not for them. The report says formula companies are not trying to bridge that gap, though, between women. Rather, it claims they're weaponizing it, using every tool they can, from apps to social media data to mommy groups to convince mothers not just to buy formula, but to buy the most expensive formula possible, tapping into whatever guilt they can, then telling you their product will alleviate that guilt. It's a classic ad sales technique, right? Either create or exacerbate a problem, or at least point to one that already exists and then say, my product is the thing that can fix it. This report isn't saying that there's a wrong way to feed your child. Rather, Sasha says, if you really want to help mothers, these experts are begging companies to pour more money into the R&D of the actual formula and less into the advertising budget. No comment yet from the trade group Nutrition Council of America, which represents formula companies. By the way, another piece of history made last night. LeBron James is now officially the NBA's all-time leading scorer. Lots of people thought that no one could ever top Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They said no one would ever again be that dominant for that long. This wasn't possible. Well, last night, Kareem was on hand in Los Angeles to literally hand over a ball, passing the torch to tearful LeBron James. History in the making there. And if you think you're not watching the greatest ever right now, right here, that is one more stat that will disagree with you. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.